Hello everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Right Way Program with me, your host, Sam Elliott. Tonight, I'm going to be talking to a man by the name of Mark Mordu, who is an Australian writer, journalist, and editor. Mark's going to be discussing with me his latest book that's just come out, thanks to the good folks at HarperCollins, uh, The Young Nick Cave, A Boy on Fire, which is about, uh, yeah, that particular Nick Cave, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, Nick Cave, or I don't know, Nick Cave and the Birthday Party or the Boys Next Door, if you know him that far back. So Mark's going to be talking about this book. Also, big congratulations to Mark for just being long-listed for the ABR Biography of the Year Award 2021. So that's really, really cool as well. So give a big digital round of applause to that. And in general, give a big digital round of applause to Mark Mordu for coming to talk to me now about his book, Boy on Fire. Mark, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast. How are you doing, man? Not too bad. Good. Thanks for having me. Great, great to have you. Um, I wanted to start off with uh, your original idea for the biography because the format or the structure of it, I believe you you mentioned it, um, is the Milton's Paradise Lost served as some inspiration for the structure, albeit some sort of Joycean. There was going to be this probably something that would amount to a, a tome of writing and then some. Was that what originally was going to be the plan? What happened there? Yeah, I, you know, I, I kind of, created a, a, a rod that was, you know, breaking my, my back uh, every time uh, I went to sort of approach it. But the, the structural nature of the biography w- w- was, was meant to work on a number of levels. And <clears throat> to some extent, I still think that's there in, the, in the, the, the fragment that exists, which is the, the book as you now know it. Um, you know, Boy on Fire, The Young Nick Cave is obviously a portrait of the artist as a young man and it details Nick growing up and, and Nick as a, a teenager in Melbourne with the boys next door and all the formative influences that created him and which he, he still harks back to right up to the present day. And indeed, isn't, even as I'm speaking to you, his latest album with Warren Ellis has just come out, Carnage, and there is an awful lot of material on that, strangely enough, that references experiences he had as a boy that have a lot uh, of resonance in, in, in my book. But initially, like any biographer, I set out to write a, a complete A to Z biography. Uh, and within a couple of years, I was struggling. Uh, uh, this is because uh, fairly obviously Nick is uh, both a, a, a profound and intensely productive artist and he's led a, a, a very big life. Um, I used to joke with friends, well, you know, when I was talking about the biography and some of the difficulties I was having, uh, well, imagine if it was like Patrick White, if Patrick White was a, a, a rock and roll junkie who had lived in Melbourne, Sydney, Berlin and South America and back around the world again. Uh, then you might have some idea of, of, of how much I have on my plate. <clears throat> and even within Boy on Fire, it begins, all the other walk-on characters are worthy of books in themselves, i.e. Roland S. Howard, i.e. Mick Harvey, and later on, of course, the people that Nick Cave worked with, whether it was Blixer Bargeld of Einstein's on Neubauten or the filmmaker Vim Vendors uh, with, with whom he appeared in Wings of Desire, uh, a a friend like Marky Smith of the Fall, uh, you know, uh, his his collaborators, I mentioned McCarvey just before, but also obviously Warren Ellis, 
uh, it just goes on and on. So, you know, like you, you're sort of in the land of the giants. You know, I'd come up with a, a structure that on one level was fairly basic, which was to sort of begin in close-up uh, in a relatively sort of present-day sort of incident and then to flashback across Nick's life from, from birth till whatever the present might happen to be. Uh, so that was one thing, a, a sort of basic sort of flashback plus chronology that I initiated the project with. I also felt fairly obviously there was a sort of geographic uh, sensibility in which I could sort of contain chapters of Nick's life, and I've already mentioned those. And they are obviously Wangaratta, Melbourne, followed by London, followed by Berlin, followed by Sao Paulo, and then basically back to London, Brighton and Hove. And, I mean, there's a lot of toing and froing with New York and Mexico chucked in there as well. But essentially you can boil uh, Nick's career down to these, these geographic zones or, or, or senses of place and with them to some extent important love affairs that he was having and, and the, the muses, if you want to use that term, that were affecting him greatly and along with those relationships, the environment, the collaborators and the, the cultural kind of energy as well, which is, of course is very important. So they were the kind of outward physical structures. And then below that, again, just to make life complicated for myself, I came up with this loose notion of tying it to Milton's Paradise Lost. And Nick himself has sort of written in some of that archetypal association through his songs, you know, in, in something like Song of Joy, in uh, an early birthday party song like Mutiny in Heaven, uh, you know, there are allusions sprinkled through Nick's music to, to Milton's Paradise Lost. Uh, and there were, there were kind of neat correlations. And I, I mentioned them uh, in the book as it now stands, Boy on Fire, where I just talk about fairly obvious kind of parallels. Um, you know, in Milton's Paradise Lost, uh, God tosses the, 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 the militant and rebellious angel, uh, Lucifer, Satan, out of... Um, Heaven, Nick's father uh, uh, sends Nick away from Wangaratta, his dreaming place, to boarding school in Melbourne. Uh, a, a sort of resentful and seething um, uh, Satan gathers his demonic angels around him by a burning lake and, and begins to establish a, 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 a kind of palace from which he will kind of wage war uh, on heaven. Uh, Nick in Melbourne at, the, at school and then around the Crystal Ballroom as a venue, builds his band or joins his, his, his group that becomes the boys next door, then the birthday party. Satan travels across space to, to, to wreak havoc upon uh, Eden and have his revenge. Nick travels across the seas to London where he's disillusioned with what he sees and decides to sort of show them how bloody good uh, he really is um, and in, in a sort of both sort of re resentful and sort of vengeful way um, almost attacks the audience with the birthday party and on and on. You can, hmm. But it, it was always going to be one of those things where if people got those, those references that was fine and if they didn't it didn't matter because the basic chronology and geography 
and the actual sort of substance of the story and the art, of course, and the people I was speaking to would be more than enough. And the concept was that the Milton thing that was merely a kind of set of story hooks that would just add another dimension to what I was doing. And that's still to some extent underlying a little of, of what's there. And at the moment I'm, I'm thinking about a, a volume two. So I'd continue to sort of make use of that metaphoric understructure, but it's not meant to be especially visible, but just something that might be appreciated by people who like those kind of things. And to help me to think through a kind of symbolic set of structures beneath the writing that would give me just a, a little bit more of a, a, a not a feeling, a, a kind of um, a shape uh, that, that was hidden, but nonetheless strong and present within what I was doing. So with the, the structure in mind, I mean, like the, the scale of that is, is commendable and obviously it's innately complex. Did you then, Mark, when you were um, forming into what is now, I know, as Boy on Fire, did you change it? drastically within like an editing process to make it more of, as you said, like a more of an, an orthodox sort of um, biography. Cause there was a couple of moments, particularly early on for me, I found uh, there was one where there was, it was from the, the perspective of Colin Cave driving. And there was another of um, I'd love to know. And I want to ask you this, if you were actually in the car, cause if you, if you weren't, then it certainly felt like you were when um, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but uh, Bladen, sorry, Bladen Butcher, Bladen Butcher, and driving to the uh, the Arias Hall of Fame, uh, two thousand and seven. Were you were you present at that or in no. that car? Okay, all right. Because I was wondering about that because just the way in which it was written was so immersive, and the whole time when I was reading, particularly in those two parts, and those are the first two, and then somewhat towards the end with the epilogue, I felt a little bit of that as well. But I was wondering if that was again. The, the, there had been more of that than you had then subsequently or consequently had to pare back in order for you to kind of have this more uh, orthodox sort of memoir. That didn't really happen at all. No, no, the, the book is, is, is pretty much as I envisaged it with additional framing. Hmm. Um, so uh, it, it, it still stands up... Uh, as a kind of volume one within the larger structure mm. that I imagined, but I didn't think of the the, uh, the, the, the the prologue and the epilogue um, as part of it. I'm just looking at it now. That that the, that that was sort of felt to be necessary just to introduce readers to the project, and I think mm. that's a really good decision. Mm. And I'm glad I was pushed to do that. Um, but I was never trying to follow Milton's Paradise Lost line by line or, you know. <laughs> no, uh, I didn't think that. But it, 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 I mean, really, you know, obviously Milton's Paradise Lost is based on the Bible. And so I was just using kind of that sort of, you know, biblical understructure as a, as a notional concept here and there to create kind of sharp points of vision to, from which to sort of see everything. But it, it was never kind of going to be tightly woven page by page or anything like that so but definitely I, I was I was I was building a monster in every sense uh, and uh, 
you know, it was just impossible to sort of, you know, <clears throat> realise the, the scope and the depth, which is really important to state, the depth of what I wanted to do uh, in one volume and in, in one project. I just couldn't do it. And um, uh, I, I could see it, but I couldn't swim to where I needed to get to, 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 to finish the journey. And, yeah, um, so I'm kind of amazed that I'm here now with it and that the work that I did do, which I always felt was good, uh, is finally out and that I managed to sort of adapt and rework it. And in some ways it's, it's better than I imagined, I have to say, and that's a kind of a nice surprise and the feedback I'm getting from people has been pretty amazing too. So... Um, but in, in answer to your question, I was not in the car in the section where Nick mm. Cave is going to the ARIA Awards, but I did interview Nick about that section. I obviously interviewed Bledon Butcher as well. I interviewed Nick's mother. Uh, Nick actually saw a preliminary draft of that chapter uh, you know, ages back uh, when I was wanting to show him where I was going to sort of take the book. Uh, and uh, and obviously I could not be in the car with uh, Colin Cave uh, when he had the terrible accident that ended mm. his life. But I did visit Wangaratta. I did hire a car and go on a the same journey at a similar, very similar time of year, which was just purely coincidental that I happened to be there within a matter of weeks of the anniversary of that time. So I drove those back roads where the where the journey occurred and the accident occurred. Uh, I looked at the coroner's report into the accident. I spoke to people that knew Colin, including the person that was a, 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 a working friend of Colin's at the school where he taught, who ended up identifying the body. Um, obviously, I spoke with Dawn Cave, who's only recently passed away, sadly, about what happened as well. So, again, it's this sort of in-depth kind of, all, I guess, new journalist-style approach where one speaks to as many people as possible, does as much research as possible, and then seeks to sort of immerse oneself into the story and put the reader present and inside the story rather than outside the story. Mm. That clearly shifts at other times in the book where you're getting critical perspectives, social context, um, you know, more sort of history and it's much more sort of voicey in the sense of you're getting more of a sense of me commenting perhaps or other people speaking to. Um, so it, it, it does sort of go into close up and out again, but certainly I wanted the book at times to feel as if you were inside the experience and that you were present there so that you were travelling with Nick, that you're travelling with Nick's father that you're, you're inside the crystal ballroom, that you're having experiences with these people, not just watching these people. <clears throat> the uh, epilogue, I was actually on the journey to Newcastle with Nick, so that was much more, I guess, personal and subjective. That's on something there that um, I wanted to kind of explore a little bit more because you mentioned early in the book, um, it's something completely unrelated to you, but it's about how much does an artist put themselves within a painting? Um, and I wondered about that with you when, when you were writing this, because 
Um, to your credit, you have achieved what you what you just mentioned, um, what you were setting out to do, which is it felt so immersive that it didn't feel like I was um, standing over your shoulder listening to, to Mark doing it. It was more a case of um, being there. And I wondered how you went about, uh, whether that was intentionally or not, or it was just you focused already with this sort of mission directive of this immersive experience for the reader, or if you felt that you had to kind of distance yourself somewhat so it wasn't so much you referring to yourself because you never really, I mean, aside from what you talked about with when you were kind of giving some pretty um, well-written summations or opinions on the tracks of music, there wasn't really like a, like a strong presence of you in it, Mark, and I was wondering if that was intentional or not, but obviously what we've kind of covered with the epilogue and then beforehand when there's the, yeah. the first meeting you had in the 80s, Yeah. Um, well, uh, the framing of the book uh, is was very new and felt to be necessary to give some sort of larger sense of context for it and for the story that's kind of about to be told, so to speak. So I'm the narrator introducing uh, myself and the, the project and, and the relationship with Nick himself. But you're quite right. Overall, I'm, I'm, I'm not visibly there uh, you can probably hear me there through the writing and the word choices and the judgments but I always knew that people are not especially interested in, in me and uh, and who I am they want to know about Nick Cave and I've read a lot of rock and roll biographies and just biographies generally and not always, but for the most part, I find when the the author is too overtly present uh, in a biography uh, with first person, it's it's intrusive. And, and the truth of the matter is, like I think the the ego of the writer has obstructed the the view of the subject. Uh, and as the writer, you're already getting a lot of ego indulgence because you're the one telling the story. You're the one choosing the descriptions. You're the one. Uh, you know, editing, you know, both on the page and off the page in terms of what you allow to come through. So, you know, it's not necessary to make yourself uh, the, the co-star. To an extent, you, you, you are inherently because you did write the book. Um, so, you know, I, I just thought logically I wanted to sort of be, like a cinematographer might, I wanted to be, be, be present in my style because I'm looking but to, 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 to allow the reader a, a sense of looking with me or, and to sort of, in a sense, again, to feel that they are in the story and only at times do they, and sometimes quite strongly, do they get shaken out of it, uh, you know, in, through one technique or another. So, yeah, I, I didn't want um, to, to be there because, you know, when I have seen works where the, the writer's too present, you know, I haven't liked it that much, which is ironic because I do use a lot of first person when I do profiles in, in journalism and for um, for magazines and, and newspapers. But there was something about the the larger state of a, of a big book about a big star like Nick Cave where I felt that, that that was inappropriate and not the best way to go. I like the way you went and I think it's to your credit that you did it like that. Um, so obviously the way in which you've aggregated everything into what is now obviously like 
on the final page there is a com- combination of untold hours of interviews with I'm assuming hundreds of people going by how much research there is. And also the actual other side of the other component is, well, I suspect uh, going by the amount of um, footnotes and all the references, particularly, I think you mentioned something no less than 20 books, films, everything in which you've, you've compiled or you've researched in order to kind of paint this Australian landscape, musical landscape, which is still in many respects kind of in its infancy, particularly pre and then post-punk. I wanted to know, how you went about marrying the two, your experiences or your interviews with what I can only assume is just a colossal amount of research and how one didn't kind of like overtake the other and there was a somewhat of a neat balance because, yeah. How did I marry the two? Yeah. With great difficulty. <laughs> I would imagine so. I would imagine so, man. I would imagine so. I, you, you've got to remember a, a number of things with it that, uh, it has been a 10-year journey, mm. so it's not. So there's been a lot of time within that. A lot of the references I was already familiar with, like I, I had read Crime and Punishment, I had seen Wings of Desire, I had read and studied Flannery O'Connor. So uh, there's material there that I'm revisiting that I'm already pretty familiar with, as are many of us throughout school and university years and, and our youth. So, I mean, to, to some extent, that makes things a, a little uh, easier. Um, and also to, you know, like with the references, I didn't read every last drop and word of Milton's Paradise Lost. And I doubt very much that Nick ever has too, but he could amaze me and say that that's not correct. So I'd love to know, actually. I should hit him up with that question next time I see him. But the, the, it was that I had read enough and knew enough from reading about Milton's Paradise Lost as an example uh, uh, to be able to sort of devise a, and, and also being raised a good Catholic boy and knowing my Bible to, to confidently be able to create a set of associations undercurrent. Um, I knew enough about new German cinema that if I'd gone on to Berlin that I'd be able to, uh, because I'd been obsessed by new German cinema in my 20s, that if I'd got to Berlin, I'd be able to write confidently about that aspect. But, you know, I have an interest in expressionist art. So, so the, 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 it, it's, it's kind of like stuff that was already there. I was able to summon again. And there's a kind of commonality, I guess, of uh, experience if you've grown up in the, 70s and 80s in Australia, uh, and because I'm only a year or two younger than Nick, you, you, you're, a lot of those influences I was absorbing at the same time, you know, whether it was Alice Cooper or William Faulkner, you know. So those, those things, they were a part of absolutely integral parts of, of my youth. So there's, there was a, the, the, the commonality helped me is basically what I'm saying and gave me a degree of confidence as well so far as how I sort of described the experiences and described the arrival of sort of punk rock and post-punk and, and these things because I, I basically lived through uh, very similar circumstances and, and cultural waves. Um, 
getting all the voices together with the with the research and the material though it, i mean for sure it's a a, a balancing act and, and you don't want to sort of bury the, the the voice and the and the dynamics of the story under research and you know i think at times maybe i did that and i was definitely helped by the editors that i had at, at harper collins australia um, and you know who were just absolutely uh, fantastic uh, and i've got to mention sort of scott forbes here who was just a, a brilliant uh, editor and um, Catherine Milne, who was the commissioning editor for the project, they helped me a lot. Um, and and so much of the the decision making and the the push and pull was was actually about very small things, where by deleting a sentence or dropping a reference or cutting one or two words back, you, you quicken the pace and, and lighten the load for the reader. And the, the narrative energy suddenly kind of picks up and, and gets a real rhythm to it. So just those small sort of adjustments. So it wasn't as like, like they were brutal at all. And, and uh, they, were, they, were, they were very kind of soft and sympathetic. And I really appreciated that as well, that they had the, the confidence and the enthusiasm for what was there. And it was really just a, a matter of refinements as much as anything. It never lost its momentum and it never felt um, that that's why I was always interested because one never went too far from the other or there was never too long a period without. So if you were, and I noticed in the acknowledgements, I think that you, you said at one point it was uh, like a social history. The book was a social history, but told through the kaleidoscope of Nick Cave or worse to that effect, something like that. And I think you're spot on about that because it did feel like, edifying i mean it was fascinating subject matter anyway but it was edifying without uh, again it ever losing the narrative like it was always it wasn't ever a case of reading pages and pages of um rock history or history of australian music but then going where's nick and the the band it was never never like that you always managed to juggle it well so whatever you guys did in the editing process or beforehand must have uh, well, that's worked. that's really good to hear and obviously that was the the goal and uh, and I was always aware of it, and it's just sort of a two pronged assault because obviously the book is about Nick, but there are probably I'm, I mean someone else will count it up, you know, on Google or, or or you know some social media spot. God, I don't know, but I think there's about like twenty major characters in the book, mm. uh, and you know without wanting to sound too pretentious, like I knew there was a sort of Dostoevsky kind of thing about it, like, you know, where you've, you've got like a main character or a Skolnikov kind of figure, a la Nick Cave, um, who's both kind of, you know, charming and intense and headed for trouble. And then all these other sort of characters sort of around him and you, whether they're, they're fleetingly present or, or, or they appear on page 37 then they reappear on page 200 uh, and that's it. You, you have to remember them on page 200 from page 237. So there has to be uh, an aliveness to them in what they say and how you describe them in uh, what their involvement in the story is and how they affect or influence Nick and why they're important. Um, so I was aware of maintaining all those characters and historically they have significance too. I don't think anyone would contest that uh, the origins of, of um, Nick Cave's working relationship with Mick Harvey, uh, his great collaborator along with Warren Ellis now, 
Uh, I don't think anyone would challenge the fact that that is a really important subject and that Mick Harvey is a major creative figure. We know Roland S. Howard, the guitarist for Boys Next Door and the birthday party and, you know, a, a great solo artist as well who, who died some time ago now has had a kind of career renaissance through the documentary Autoluminescent and um, interest in his whole kind of music career um, before and after Nick is, is just growing and growing. So he's, his reputation seems to be increasing. So again, historically, a very important figure. Tracy Pugh, who was the basis for the birthday party that many people may not be familiar with, his sound as a bass player was, was definitional to the birthday party and to what most people think of as that sort of swampy kind of gothic Melbourne rock and roll sound that really comes out of Tracy Pugh's bass. Phil Calvert, a great, great drummer, you know, influenced by jazz, by James Brown, by all these dynamics and who's been a kind of keeper of the, the early historical flame as well in terms of images and other kind of important aspects to the history along with, with, with Mick Harvey. Yeah, and has, you know, came back as well as later joining Psychedelic Furs and then coming back here to be in a major sort of Australian band, Blue Ruin, in the 80s, has his own record label, which is supporting a lot of important young Australian acts. Again, a very important figure, Anita Lane, Nick's great mm. love at time, who had a, has had a really interesting and, and kind of strange solo career and was... You know, fated by everybody in the book as a, as an, probably the most original talent, even more so than Nick himself, uh, and who influenced everything from Nick's image to you know, to his lyrics to uh, to his his interest in literature and art. So, I mean, I could go on and on, but the, all these figures are very significant. And even when you look at a venue like the Crystal Ballroom, the nature of it as a significant place and how how all the people who went there, all the individuals were going to have a, a very important place in Melbourne and Australia-wide, you know, in film, art, fashion, music, whatever it might be. So you, so it's, it's, it's a really great thing to be able to fan out and show all those people, show all that history, and yet somehow maintain the, the centre, the, the mast of the story, and, and, and keep Nick sort of present. But if you don't like Nick, if you don't care about Nick, if, even if you hate Nick, mm. I would hope the book still has a lot of value as a social and cultural history of what it was like to grow up and form yourself in Australia in the 60s, 70s and 80s, particularly in the sort of rock and roll scene and in country Victoria and Ned Kelly country around Wangaratta and how all this stuff is continuing to influence us now. I think it's... I think it's important and, and I hope I've managed to catch some of that. You most definitely have. And you did mention, I'm glad that you just mentioned it then because early on you mentioned something about how um, there's all these other potential characters that could have a biography of their own. And for me, the one that definitely out of all those figures that you just mentioned then um, that I'll definitely fucking read uh, that biography hundred percent was Trace View in terms of, all the wild shit that him and Nick got up to in terms of like the driving of the stolen cars, the crashing, all that sort of stuff. And what I kind of wanted to touch on with you as well, Mark, is you mentioned the musical influences. You touched on that. You, you, you've obviously meticulously researched all that and you've, you've got these other interests that some of them 
fortunately coincided or overlapped with your own interests, like the, the new German cinema. What I wanted to really talk about, because I felt it was actually somewhat quite defining, particularly in the formative years of Nick Cave, was, and you mentioned it as well, was the Dostoevsky crime punishment. So I wanted to get to that as well. But this notion of wanting to be an outlier, like an, an outlaw, uh, criminal in some way, socially reviled. I mean, there's, I think you mentioned it in one sentence once. It's Brett Whiteley, Francis Bacon, Bowie. So there's the musical element, but there's also this, the, the crime and punishment, which is something that I think that you mentioned that Nick Cave constantly has revisited. Obviously, it's influences his lyrics. What was it about this archetypal figure or this perhaps unknowable figure that seemed to entrance and captivate Nick Cave so much and then has subsequently gone on to inspire so much of his music, do you think? Uh, well, I mean, for sure, you know, Nick was really uh, uh, obsessed or in- interested deeply, I think that's a, at least a modest way to put it, in the Ned Kelly story. I mean, he was you know, uh, grew up in Wangaratta, that's Ned Kelly's heartland. Uh, his father, Colin Cave, was very obsessed with the, the, the whole Ned Kelly uh, myth and, and the, the, the history of it. Um, Colin Cave actually uh, ran a, a weekend symposium about Ned Kelly and all the events around Ned Kelly's life and capture and, and death in Wangaratta in 1967. Uh, there were papers presented at that. A, a book came out of it in which Colin Cave published a, a, a chapter himself as the introduction. Uh, Ian Johnson, who wrote the definitive uh, Ned Kelly uh, biography stroke history, I think attended or certainly read all the papers from that conference and specifically thanks Colin Cave in that biography the biography that Ian Johnson wrote that was you know, partly sort of driven and shaped by that symposium from Colin Cave ended up inspiring uh, or being used as, as base material for Peter Carey's The True History of the Kelly Gang. Uh, and so you begin to see all these sort of webs being kind of woven together by, by fate and history and uh, you know the, the father's uh, passion for the story of Ned Kelly inspiring the son, uh, the, the the father's influence, Colin Cave's influence on Australian cultural history, which is to some extent unknown and undercredited uh, through that symposium and, and through his more known reputation as a major figure. Uh, in uh, adult education in Victoria at the time and uh, its um, evolution. I mean, the funny thing about Colin Kay, Nick's father, is that if Nick hadn't have been famous, Colin Kay would be one of the more historical figures that we might know of, you know, like obviously not nearly as famous as Nick, but Colin Kay was a, a dynamo, an absolute dynamo, and he kind of transformed the communities wherever he went. Uh, and he was a, a, a figure of statewide and, and national significance in relation to the Ned Kelly story. So, of course, that's going to affect the, the son. Of course, when Nick goes to Melbourne and he, he's going to carry a, a, an affection and a sense of love for the whole thing of Ned Kelly and the, the more mythical and ghostly side of it and almost the, the more of an attraction to the Sidney Nolan sense of what Ned Kelly was. And, of course, Sidney Nolan was, 
sowing his own sense of himself into the Nick Kelly story through his paintings. And, and Nick, I think, uh, had a, a similar kind of autobiographical uh, relationship to it. And that involved being an outsider. That involved, you know, yeah, you know, fantasies about rebellion, about being a, a kind of outlaw. And I mean, these are all fairly prototypical things when one is a, a kind of rebellious, young, angry teenage boy. You know, you're going to find that romantic in the same way if, if I was sort of trying to relate it to an American that they would sort of connect it to, you know, the, the mythical side of the history of Jesse James or, or, or whoever it, it might be. And I, I, I mean, of course, Nick would go on to do the soundtrack to a film about Jesse James. And there's a sort of a strange little echo in it in that Nick's son actually played, I think the part of um, Earl Kay played the part of Dan Kelly uh, in the recent Ned Kelly film. Uh, oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So, so, so Nick's father, Colin, and Nick's son uh, have direct uh, connections to the Ned Kelly. Nick's father through the symposium and through his uh, cultural and historical influence, Nick's son through his part in the film, and Nick himself just through his attraction to the story and the art of Sidney Nolan and and other aspects to it. So it's, it's a, just a really interesting kind of area. Mm. You mentioned Colin Cave there a, f- a few times, obviously, because he was a very interesting man, uh, particularly with, with his with his work, uh, the historic work, as well as um, the theatre work as well, putting on shows and then driving, I think you described it as a big big four-hour drive through you know, pretty some pretty rough roads and stuff like that. But... I also felt, Mark, that you didn't want to fixate too much on the, the tragic loss of Colin Cave uh, and how that kind of shaped Nick Cave. Um, there was one line um, kind of around the time that it happens when uh, Nick's processing it, and I think that you had mentioned about how it's seldom, seldom has meant the question is always constantly posed to Nick Cave, albeit in the past, has been about the impact that his father's tragic passing has had on him. But very rarely is there any sort of any thought given to uh, Dawn Cave in terms of what happened and how that impacted her. There was also um, another mention of uh, Nick Cave really, or I don't know if it ever has missed an anniversary of his father's death with Dawn. Is that something? That's well, the, the best of my knowledge, Nick hardly ever missed uh, a year in Australia to be with his mother at the time, the anniversary of his father's death, or very close to it. Uh, and I think that sort of tells you a lot about his, his love uh, for his mother, Dawn, and how much it meant to him to be near her each year at the time of the loss of his father. Um, I mean, of course, you know, like it, it was... Convenient that, that you know that the his father uh, the accident was January seventh uh, and uh, so it's summer so Nick was is every year it's kind of visiting at Christmas New Year it's high touring kind of time you know big day out and those other sort of festivals are happening so it, it's it's in some respects easy but we're talking of decades where when Nick never misses a beat to, to mm. be back here and I, I think that had a lot to do with his 
his um, love for his mother. And uh, Dawn Cave was certainly as an equally important an influence on Nick as what Nick's father Colin was. And uh, I mean, I was really fortunate to talk to Dawn many times while she was alive and to be a guest in the family home. And, um, and yeah, you know, she was just fantastic to talk to. She's really humorous, really warm, you know, and she could talk to you about poetry, about religion. And so there, there, are, there are a lot of aspects to Nick and, you know, without being sort of too cliched about it, because life is always more complicated than that. You know, I think there are a lot of literary influences that Nick got from his father, particularly, uh, particularly Nabokov, Nabokov and Shakespeare yes. in terms of the, 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 the and, and, and Pinter probably too, in terms of the sort of theatrical uh, interests and the, the performing sensibilities, that sort of larger than life energy, the, the over the topness and, and definitely the drive, I think. But I also think Nick was very influenced by his mother in her, 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 her sort of wit and her, her literary interests as well, uh, particularly with poetry. And, um, you know, he was really fortunate to have two very uh, talented, brilliant parents uh, who gave him different things. And I think you can see both those sides to, to Nick's character um, both in him as a human being and, of course, in his work. In that respect, I'm sure we are, we are all the same. We are very much products of our history, particularly our, our, our parents, you know, physically, in our DNA, in our, our emotional chemistry. Um, so, yeah, they're, 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 they're very important figures. But you're right. Like Nick tended to talk a lot throughout you know, his early sort of midlife sort of periods anyway, about the traumatic death of his father. It was, certainly was traumatic, but what wasn't probably as well understood, and, and I hope it's made more visible in Boy on Fire, is understanding how traumatic that was for Nick's mother, Dawn, hmm. and how much Nick felt um, a need to, to, to sort of look after his mother and somehow sort of carry uh, the, the the suffering of it and some of the the guilt and around it as well in terms of sort of unresolved tensions with his father and 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 the trouble Nick had made as a sort of difficult and rebellious boy growing up for his father and his mother and just that none of those things sort of ever found a kind of smooth um, or conciliatory sort of uh, place and suddenly Nick's father was gone. His mother was traumatised and, and Nick had just given them really a, a hell of a lot of grief. So, you know, he kind of placed that uh, frustration and guilt and rage and energy into the, the music of what became the birthday party. I think that was the, the chemistry that really sort of um, uh, exploded into the, 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 the into the, exploded into making the boys next door the birthday party. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 it is an interesting um, transition, and you are right. I mean, who isn't kind of inf influenced by their parents, and uh, particularly that particular dynamic of the father and son, um, particularly if they're if you've got a erudite. Um, father that's that loves his reading and then passes that on um including reading 
the little bit or the beginning of the, the leader, or I think he might potentially know it off by heart. I mean, of course, that's going to influence you. And I think you're right. I think that you definitely did capture that in terms of the amount of influence that Dawn had as well and the impact that, that Colin's death had on her. It kind of dovetails into what I wanted to talk about because you didn't really shy away from... It wasn't a sanitized biography, which is many can I suspect fall prey to where they don't want to kind of brush up against the pointy parts of someone's life. And I guess that probably from the outset, Mark, you couldn't really do that anyway, knowing that you're going to be writing about someone that's um, on and off pretty uh, fully blown heroin addict for, for a lot of years. Still, though, I wanted to ask you um, what you were depicting with the crystal boring and that sort of area. Was that at the forefront of your mind ever? Or, you know, do I need to kind of sanitize this a bit? Or did you actually think the opposite? Or did that not even really kind of come into it? Because it never really felt like it was... was a heavy fixture of the book, even though heroin is obviously in heroin use as mentioned. Um, But it never seemed to detract too much either from the overall story. Well, I mean, I I don't want to fetishise the the drug thing Mm. and I I don't want to kind of um, obsess over it to a point that I I make it kind of falsely romantic and and falsely exciting. Mm. But I certainly didn't want to avoid the subject of drugs and of of uh, aggression and nastiness and all these other sort of associated factors. Uh, I definitely didn't want to write a hagiography or anything particularly sort of sanitised at all. And I I would never shy away from uh, the truth in any way, frankly. Um, In fact, if anything, at times I think with writing, there's for my own self at times there's a need to watch going too far and... uh, going too hard at the truth uh, because you can hurt people and you have to do have to ask yourself the question is the truth uh, entirely necessary all Mm. the time in terms of what you're saying and what you're doing and I think ultimately too in the end I, I, I never felt that I was writing a book to to either hurt Nick or to please him I was writing a book to write the best possible story and do the best reporting and be as sort of literary and dynamic and powerful and funny as I could be and just do everything I could at my best. Um, So the story itself kind of was a driver and ultimately regards uh, things that may have caused hurt. You know, Nick has been a public figure now pretty well all his life and if there were things that were going to upset Nick, I guess at heart I mostly felt, well, that's just how it's got to be. Um, but I was more worried about what I would call collateral damage where people who are not so famous or who uh, happen to be associated with Nick, whether it's his mother or, or friends of his you know, in his teens and 20s, how what I wrote could hurt them. And this is the difficulty of dealing with someone who's famous is when you write about them, it's kind of like writing about a comet passing through all these lives. And, and you're trying to give all these lives their due in terms of how they've inspired Nick or, or certain songs or had a part to play in his development. Um, and you're trying to do it as truthfully and as accurately as you can, but you also got to do it concisely 
and again, as I mentioned earlier in this conversation, in a way that's sort of memorable. So if a, a person's going to crop up in two or three places, the reader will immediately hold them in their mind. Uh, so, you know, if you've got a sort of vivid set of two or three quotes that make a person hang in the reader's mind, that person may not feel entirely sort of fully realised as a human being by a couple of quotes in a book and it can be a bit upsetting and shocking to see it. So you're wrestling with those kind of the, 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 the ethics around the representation of what you might call minor or less central characters in the story and they're the people you have to be, I think, concerned about hurting because they, they haven't particularly sought the spotlight in, in the way that, that, that Nick has. Um, so I tried to kind of tread carefully there as best I, I could uh, and, and that's not easy. And, and there are, I think, a couple of people who've been you know, upset or, or unhappy uh, with their portrayals. Not too many though, you know, literally a couple, two or three mm. to the best of my knowledge. Um, but most people have been really happy about it, which, which I'm glad for. And no one, you know, as yet has come to me with any complaints about accuracy. There might be an issue with tone. There might be an issue with being too accurate. As a matter of fact, that's been a problem. I wish you hadn't put that in, but no Mm. one has said to me that that's, you know, totally wrong. Yeah, I'm sure there are details in the book that, you know, small things that are, are, are not spot on. I mean, it's what, five, six hundred pages, you know, and it's stuff that happened, uh, you know, 40, even 50 years ago. So, mm. um, but I hope the, the larger framework and the, the central tenets that I've focused on and uh, uh, hold strong and, there are a lot of areas in the book too with regard to sort of facts and details where you might get two or three or even four different sort of views and you get many, many different views of, of Nick. So you, there's this sort of constellation of opinions and, and memories and, and I think that helps keep the book alive too so that the, the, the history itself is still being kind of raked over and talked about and it's still alive in people. They're still remembering it. And yet you're hearing different versions of things. And I tried to take advantage of, of those variations and those different perspectives and, and not sort of come down particularly hard on any one side of the story, but to sort of let all the voices coexist in a kind of sort of messy chorus of, of, uh, of debate and, and, and love and hate and whatever else might be there in terms of how they kind of summon up the past and still live in it. Mm. Messy chorus is a good way to put it. I don't think that. I think that's a, a pretty tall order to um, get the shits at someone if they've if they've duly reported something that they've been told from a few different sources, and then they say, "Why? Well, that's not how I remember that." I, I don't think that you can give someone stick for that too much if they've gone to a few different sources as best they possibly can. So I'm not surprised that you haven't really encountered that um, all too much there. Um, kind of wrapping up, Mike, with the your we talked about it before about your inclusion or your decision to kind of bookend it as it were of yourself and then the rest of it was kind of more focused on the the immersion of the reader i must say i still like that and you again are talking about um not being shy about the depiction of the truth there i liked that the stories you recounted about your own self uh with 
with Nick Cave weren't, um, you guys didn't get exactly get along all that well. There was the, in the epilogue, you mentioned the Newcastle experience when you went to the saw, saw them, um, I think it was Nick Cave and the birthday party at the Newcastle RSL in the 80s and you're like, I hated them. <laughs> and then a couple of years later, obviously you got the chance to, to go again. And I think also you saw them again and it was, you described it. It was such a good description. It was like an evil fire or an evil light or something. If you, if you recall that, that particular part, but I like that you did that. The same Miguelian, it was demonic. It was demonic. Yeah. Yeah. But I like that you did that, that you included yourself and like the, the again, book in the previous, at the beginning of the of the book, you talked about how the, the first time you spoke, I think it was a phone interview. It didn't exactly go, it didn't go badly. It wasn't like it, it ended abruptly. It's just that it didn't really, you guys weren't really. Connected. I wasn't unfriendly, but it was just like paint drying. It was the pits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you included that. So, so was that like an active decision as well? Because you wanted to present the, the truth again, warts and all? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, you know, like, uh, like the, the the truth is, I think, you know, always your friend. It mm. really is. Uh, and if it's awkward, then there's a kind of problem-solving dimension to nonfiction writing. Uh, but I, I just always, the truth is your your friend in nonfiction. It's a, and it, it strengthens the the art side of, of, of non-fiction it strengthens the literary aspirations one has to raise non-fiction up to the level of the novelistic that the truth really helps you i mean the other aspect to, to those little sort of anecdotal asides and using them is they're, they're, they're humorous so you can bring in a degree of uh, of comedy about yourself and about other people and you know one of the other aspects i'm really pleased with in the book is in the the tone of voice and in the way that Nick and Roland S. Howard and Phil Calvert and Tracy Pugh and Mick Harvey and other people speak, there there are often inflections of a very sort of sardonic Australian humour that's um, self-effacing, sometimes crude, a little surreal, and I'm glad that's there because that brings another kind of sort of tonal sort of energy to the book too you know like it's it's not all kind of heavy and serious and analytical like there, there's a real um human energy to it so mm. you know uh, and 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 so the the, the tonality of, of myself in that is is consistent too and and possibly i was influenced by that material to be true to my voice in its different aspects because sometimes when you're writing a, a book and just generally I find in my own writing I seem to forget humour as a part of my kind of sort of speaking and writing identity and become sort of serious as a critic or, or an author and get very serious on the page and and lose that element and it's not like the element has to dominate I'm not trying to be a comedian but just the fact that you can sort of use a, a, a bit of humour and and that brings another it opens up another door in what you're doing. Mm. No, you did that. You did that well. And humour is humour does run throughout it. It's not always, um, you know, doom and gloom and grim. And the, the funny end goes throughout. I mean, some of them, I, I don't know if I'm supposed to laugh at, but I did. Like the, the crashing the stolen cars, the time where they got picked up and dropped off by, well, they got picked up by someone who'd seen them. And, uh, and then 
they were driving along and Nick did the thing where he got on the roof of the car when it was driving at speed and then they hit the brakes, like, and he's still got a scar on his back. Like, that sort of shit. That's Maybe that just speaks volumes about my level of humour or something like that. No, no, but. not at all. I mean, you know, like, it, but there, there, there's plenty of things in the book that you can take two ways. I mean, hmm. as with many aspects of life, possibly it's both serious and funny and hmm. we laugh serious in order to sort of digest it and 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 live with it you know i mean that's what black humor is for a start you know so yeah you know so you know i mean we you can laugh at inappropriate times when people go to funerals and suddenly feel a compulsion to laugh because the emotion in them is welling out of them in ways they 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 don't understand so you know our emotions are sort of strange volcanic things and can and and, and how they emerge versus what they express could be you know, extremely contradictory. And, and maybe in that respect, you've touched on something really important in Boy on Fire in the sense that he, he sh- Nick shifts from this really sort of sweet, inspired, brilliant country boy to this pretty sort of dark and aggressive and, and sort of unlikable young man but if you look at everything that's gone on around him and the loss of his father and what he's been through, perhaps, you know, like that, that sort of energy and that sort of resentment and that unpleasantness is, is really a, it's, it's just a carapace, a, a defensive sort of manifestation of someone trying to kind of cover and put a shield up because behind him deep down inside is still that, 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 that that kid from Wangaratta, you know, with that, so, you know, the, the, so the, the warmth and the, the the warm spirit is still there. And I think you can probably see that a lot more now with Nick as he, you know, writes his red hand files and, you know, uh, continues to kind of open out his music in new and exciting ways. Like there's a, a very kind of rich, complicated individual and he's communicating with, with almost sort of, Buddhist-like sort of wisdom on red hand files, and yet he can still come up with some very sinister songs as well. It's all there: the darkness, the humour, you know, the sweetness and light, and the the menace. It is, and you've captured it, Mike. You've captured it well. Um, Thanks, man. Much appreciated. No, my hat, my hat goes off to you, my man, because that's that's there's a lot of yeah. It's um, and I I understand that you mentioned early on you're considering. Another instalment? Is that is that correct? I know it's very early days. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I hadn't. Uh, I, I'm, I'm moving more and more towards committing myself uh, to a volume two. I've got enough material there to easily do London and, and Berlin and Sao Paulo probably too um, for a kind of volume two. And that would probably work to make it a sort of a two-hand, a boy on fire, volume one and this other volume and, I, I hadn't committed to that when I, I, I kind of developed and finished Boy on Fire because I just didn't know if I could do it because the, the Boy on Fire had just cost me so much personally and mm. the process had been so sort of disrupted and, you know, the, the background to it for me involving a relationship breakup and, and you know, job loss and getting my life together again. You know, the, the it, people are saying the book took me 10 years, but really it took me five years to write the book and five years to sort my own life out, uh, you know, because it wasn't like I was spending 10 years sitting around writing about Nick Cave, not at all. Mm. Um, 
And so the thought of a second volume was like, oh, gee, I don't really know if I uh, want to deal with the turbulence of all that. And also, I don't particularly want to spend the rest of my life writing about Nick Cave either. I've got other things I want to do. But um, I, I do feel that uh, I spoke to a lot of great people. I do have all that material there for London and Berlin. And I feel like I'd like to honour the, the generosity of, of, of stories and, and trust that those, those people gave me in those places too. And, you know, the fact that it's finite rather than trying to do a full life makes me think I could do a second volume. So, yeah, it's definitely on the table and I'll probably make up my mind absolutely in the, the next couple of weeks. Cool, man. Well, you know, I look forward to that, but come what may, Mark, no matter what uh, what you produce or what you choose to do next, man, I look forward to seeing and reading what you do. Cool. Thank you. Appreciate and con- it. And congratulations on getting longlisted for the Avia's uh, biography of the year, my man. That's, that's very good work. Very well deserved. Thank you. So, guys, that was Mark Mordu talking to me about his book, Boy on Fire, which is a great read. If you want to get your hands on a copy, it's available in all bookshops now. I will post the bio to HarperCollins, sorry, the website of HarperCollins on the bio slash description of this episode on Spotify slash SoundCloud. So get your hands on a copy now. Thank you again for Mark for appearing on the show. And thank you again to you for listening to this episode of the show. Bearing in mind that there's a lot more episodes to come, but to sate your appetite at the moment, if you absolutely need some more episodes, then please by all means continue to listen to the rest. They all should be available there on whichever platform you're listening to this on, be it Spotify or SoundCloud, or maybe, I don't know, if it's on iTunes. I hope it is. I have no... (laughs) direct control over that but if it isn't that's awesome uh but anyway yes please stay tuned because there's a lot more episodes coming up i do say that and it's without a shred of hyperbole there is a lot coming up so thank you very much for listening stay tuned and you all have a lovely evening now